Ecclesiastes chapter 6 is where we'll begin tonight. If you're not already there, go ahead and turn there. Ecclesiastes chapter 6. God, we pray a blessing on Your Word tonight. We pray, Holy Spirit, again, asking You just to come and speak to us and teach us. Make Your Word clear to us, Father. We don't always know what was on Kohala's mind or what he was trying to get across, but we know, Lord, that Your Spirit is clear and a great teacher. And so we come before You, Rabbi Yeshua, asking, teach us now, Lord Jesus, by Your Spirit. In Your precious name we pray. Amen. Alright, so we're going to pick right up where we left off last week. If you weren't here last week, we ended up chapter 5 with Kohalath, the preacher, declaring that God gives a great gift on earth. That there's an, an actual earthly reward that He gives to people, which is the ability to enjoy pleasantries here on earth. That that is a gift from God. If you have wealth, if you have honor, if you have riches, if you have any good thing, which, let's be honest, most of us here do, then we have been given also that ability to enjoy. That ability, it's a reward, Kohalath calls it. But now, abruptly, with the beginning of chapter 6, he shows us the other side. Verse 1, There is an evil which I have seen under the sun, and it is prevalent among men. A man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor so that his soul lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet, God has not empowered him to eat from them, for a foreigner enjoys them. This is vanity and a severe affliction. Some have great wealth, riches, and honor under the sun, and they're gifted to enjoy it. Others have great wealth, honor, and riches under the sun, but cannot enjoy it. Is God just playing games here? Is He just messing with us? You know, I was thinking about this last week, and I think part of the reason why so many people, when they keep God at a distance, think that He is messing with them, toying with them, is because we've got this Greek Western mindset. And the Western mindset, coming right out of of the Greek mindset, makes you think about gods that would play with you, that would toy with you. From Mount Olympus, just sitting up there messing with humans. And somehow that translated over into even American thinking, and people will say, Ah, God's just messing with me. God's making life hard for me. God's blessing you. He's messing with me. And, and does He bless? Does He mess with? What's the deal here? Is this really the kind of God that, that we serve? A God who plays games? Now, the humanist might be tempted to think so. If God blesses two men with wealth, but only gives one the gift of enjoyment and the other doesn't get the gift of enjoyment, what other conclusion can we come to except that God toys with people? The problem is it misses the entire point of Kohala's preaching. And it's important to understand things in context. That's why there's such a value in going through the Bible as we are. If we understand things in context, how they're being presented, things make much more sense than when you go in and you try and pull out a verse or a passage. You know, if you compare verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6 to verse 18 of chapter 5, it seems like a complete contradiction. Or a God who messes with people. But that couldn't be further from the truth. Remember, the preacher has positioned himself in the humanistic position, the secular position. That's where he's preaching from. So what he's trying to do is get to Elohim, God, off there in a distance. He's trying to get to God from a natural perspective. He's using human eyes and and an earthly mindset. And it doesn't work. He's looking for meaning under the sun. And as you will see very clearly, even more so tonight than we have so far, meaning will not be, cannot be found under the sun. You can't get it there. In fact... The deeper you go in search of meaning, the deeper it gets. And that's not a positive. The deeper you go, the deeper it gets. And you keep going and you keep having to go deeper and you never get there. Because there is no meaning under the sun. We need a different point of view. We need a higher perspective. We need to be enabled to to see above the sun. 
That's where we need to go. Colossians 3 verse 1, Paul gives us the key. If you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above. Where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on the earth. The blessing of gathering here on Wednesday night like we do and pouring over the Word is that's what you're doing. You are setting your mind on things above. Think about how much time you spend through the week setting your mind on things below. Living under the sun. From the moment you're up in the morning watching the morning news if you do that to dealing with the day-to-day stuff at work, at school, at home. You're living under the sun. We get enough under the sun, don't we? The Word of God, the Spirit of God, invites us to go above the sun, to set our minds on things above. Now, you might say, that sounds great. Sounds great to have an above-the-sun perspective, but how can we truly set our minds in that place when none of us have ever been there? Well, Paul also answered that. You may not have gone there, but Jesus has. Jesus has. Keep seeking the things above, he says, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And when we seek Jesus, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, Colossians 2.1 tells us, we no longer look at things from under the sun. We get a Jesus perspective that allows us to look at things from above the sun. We get a new viewpoint. A new vantage point. But, without faith, you'll never get there. You just keep searching and searching and searching. Well, let's go with Koheleth and see where he leads us tonight. Verse 3. Verse 3, continuing on. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, however many they may be, but his soul is not satisfied with good things and he does not even have a proper burial, then I say, better the miscarriage than he. Brace yourselves, this is brutal teaching. For it comes in futility. What does? The miscarriage. It comes in futility. It goes into obscurity. And its name is covered in obscurity. It never sees the sun. It never knows anything. It's better off than he. Even if the other man lives a thousand years twice and does not enjoy good things, do not all go to one place better the miscarriage than the man who lives under the sun without the answers, without the, the joy, without the satisfaction? From the perspective of the earth, there's only one way to go, and that's down. From an under the sun perspective, it is all despair. There is no hope. Gravity is a grave situation, you might say. Because that's where you're headed. It's the best you've got. And so the despairing humanist would cry out, better not to see the sun at all. Better not to ever even have been born. Again, the preacher's offering a brutal expression of the futility of life lived from below, under the sun, unable to see things from above. I want you to notice this. The word miscarriage there in verse 3, it's the Hebrew word nephel. Nephel. And just to be absolutely clear about what Koheleth is saying here, this word nephel, it means an untimely birth. And it speaks specifically of a miscarried fetus with no experience of life on the earth. Never having seen the light of day, as he says, dying in futility, moving into obscurity, unknowing and unknown, and it's a pretty dark perspective. By the way, three other biblical writers express this this idea of Nephel. Three other biblical writers compare themselves to one that is miscarried. The first is Job in his pain. Job in his pain cried out, Job 3.11, Why did I not die at birth? Come forth from the womb and expire. In verse 16 of Job chapter 3. Or like a miscarriage, Nephel, which is discarded, I would not be. As infants that never saw light, there the wicked cease from raging, and there the weary are at rest. Job said, if this is life under the sun, I don't want to see the sun. Would that I had never seen the sun in the first place. And people can relate to Job and his pain. Perhaps you. Many people down through the years have suffered 
physical, emotional, even spiritual anguish and pain and have felt like Job. I wish I'd just never been born. I would not have to deal with this at all. You know, it's interesting. Job's perspective of of being miscarried implies, I'd like to have existence, just not here. (laughs) Lord, get me started and then take me on home. That's kind of what he's saying. I just don't want the pain of this life. Well, it's not just pain. It's also persecution. Jeremiah in his persecution. Job in his pain. Jeremiah in his persecution. The prophet Jeremiah. The high priest Pashur pulls Jeremiah aside. And you need to understand this was a time in Israel when they were about to go into captivity. Babylon was bearing down and Jeremiah was saying, we're going gang. This is it. It's over. And as he was prophesying this, all the rest of the prophets around him and the high priest and and the leadership, they were saying, no, we're not. It's going to be fine. God's going to protect us. He always has. He always will. They were falsely prophesying. Pashur had had enough of Jeremiah. So he brings him in. He has him beaten. And then he has him placed in the stocks overnight as a lesson to him. Jeremiah the next day, because of this persecution, cries out in Jeremiah chapter 20, Cursed be the day when I was born. Let the day not be blessed when my mother bore me. Cursed be the man who brought the news to my father, saying a baby boy has been born to you and made him very happy. Jeremiah's had enough. He's tired of it. He doesn't want to be God's mouthpiece. He's tired of being the prophet. All I get is beat up for it, he's saying. In verse 17 of Jeremiah 20, he says, Because he did not kill me before birth so that my mother would have been my grave and her womb ever pregnant, why did I ever come forth for the womb to look on trouble and sorrow so that my days have been spent in shame? Persecution. Jeremiah had gone through the ringer. You know, it's, it's easy to say, or perhaps even romantic in the spiritual mindset to say, Lord, I'll be persecuted for you. I'll do anything for you, Lord. I'll, I'd die for you. That's what Peter said, right? Until it got a little difficult and he took off. And it's even romantic sometimes in our minds to think about, yeah, if, if, if I got sent off to China and was persecuted there for the Lord, hallelujah. Yeah, until you're being persecuted. And those who are persecuted never come back and say, hey, it was great. It was, I loved it. They say it was hard. It was painful. It was a torment. And yet... Praise God that He gave me the strength to stay alive through it. Well, here's Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. He understood this. I wonder down through the years how many people have felt this depth of despair from either pain or from persecution. Life is just too hard. Oh, that I had never been born. Oh, that I had never seen the sun. You know, it's not so much suicidal as it is infanticidal, really. Not that I wish I could die now, it's just I wish I had never lived. Come forth from the womb and seen the light of day. You know, all that's necessary to have the strength to face the pain of a Job, or even the persecution of a Jeremiah, is to be born again. It's the second birth. It's not the death of the first birth that we need. It's the second birth that we need. Not that spiritual rebirth exempts you from pain or persecution. It doesn't. Most of you here can attest to that fact that just because you give your life to Jesus doesn't mean life gets rosy and easy. Sometimes it gets far more difficult. Except that there's a new peace there. And there's a new strength there. And there's a joy there you never had before. Being born again is the key. It gives me a completely different perspective. In fact, in that spiritual perspective, I am lifted up above the sun. I am looking from a Jesus eye view. And that's what we see with Paul. Job in his pain, Jeremiah in his persecution. Paul, in his perspective, is the third biblical person who refers to this idea of a miscarriage. But his is completely different. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 1. And by the way, 1 Corinthians 15, the entire chapter, is absolutely cornerstone to Paul's teaching. It's absolutely foundational to Christian faith because in it he expresses the wonder and the joy of resurrection, of the new life that's coming before us. 
And he begins with Jesus. He says in verse 1, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, and to the Twelve. And after that, He appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom who remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. And I really like to point this out. Understand when Paul wrote that, what an amazing thing to claim. Because most of the people of that 500 who saw him all at the same time were still alive. So when he said this, all he was saying is, check it out. Ask them. Don't just take my word for it. Take the 500 who saw him. Take their word for it. Check out the story. And then he goes on. Then he appeared to James. And then to all the apostles. And watch this. Last of all, verse 8. As to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Ectroma is the Greek word. As to one miscarried. As to one aborted, really is what he's saying. Jesus appeared to me. I'm the least of the apostles. I'm not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am. And His grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God in me. Paul says, and this is just shocking language in the Greek, ectroma. I am one untimely born. I am one, he said, who had an abortive birth. What in the world does Paul mean by this? Completely different than Job and his pain. Different than Jeremiah and his persecution. Paul is saying, as the last of the apostles to see Jesus, I lack the gestation period that all the rest of them had. They got three years. They got 36 months to grow in the womb, as it were, to be with Jesus before they were birthed into their lives of faith. I didn't get that. So I'm kind of like an aborted birth, a miscarried birth. I'm one that that came after the fact. No time for growth with Jesus. It was just an overnight thing. But, But, he says, my premature birth was into the full flow of God's grace by the Holy Spirit. He's saying, I I came to it all at once. And so, Paul the runt would become the mighty man of God. The least of the apostles. Boy, in our eyes, among the greatest for what he did, what he taught, what he shared. So, Job in his pain said, I wish I'd never been born. Jeremiah in his persecution says, I wish I'd never been born. Paul in his perspective says, I was born late, but I was born... Spiritual birth. Rather than despairing in his pain or or lamenting his persecution, Paul delighted in Jesus and longed to see Him. Longed for His coming. Eyes fixed on the prize. Paul raced the race to win. And, And that's what being born again does to you. Go back over to Ecclesiastes. To be born again is to set my mind and my spirit on things above rather than on things below. And isn't that kind of the tension of our Christian lives? Isn't that the calling, I'd say, every single day of our life to see things from a God perspective, to look upon things above? And the tragedy with any of us, the tragedy in my life, is when I go a day, two, three, a week, a month, and I've been so focused on things below, I've completely lost sight. Instead of having the eyes of faith to see things as God does, well, the humanist does not have those eyes of faith and continues to look at the world and evaluate everything from down here. Verse 7. All a man's labor is for his mouth, and yet the appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage does the wise man have over the fool? What advantage does the poor man have, knowing how to walk before the living? What the eyes see is better than what the soul desires, or literally better than what the soul gets. This too is futility and a striving after the wind. That last verse sums it up well. What the eyes see is better than what the soul gets. My dad used to say, Rick, your eyes are bigger than your stomach. You know, you take too much on the plate and then you wouldn't finish it. And my dad, you know, he grew up in a day and age just after the Depression where you ate everything on your plate. 
There was no leaving food. And to this day, whatever my mom puts on my dad's plate, he eats. So she's putting less now. Your eyes are bigger than your stomach. Isn't that absolutely true? It looks really good until it starts going in. And then, after a while, you start to get a little tired of what you're... You know, and, and you can't get the satisfaction you thought you were going to get. Verse 10, whatever exists has already been named. And it is known what man is, for he cannot dispute with him who is stronger than he is. There are many words which increase futility. What then is the advantage to a man? What's he getting at here? You can't argue with God. You simply can't argue with Him who named man in the first place, who knows who man is, and who is stronger than man will ever be. You can't argue with Him. Many are going to try. Many will try to make their case before God. Well, I lived a good life. Look at my deeds, Lord. And He'll say, okay. Revelation chapter 20, verse 11 through 15. Let's open those books. Let's look at your deeds. People actually, and it's shocking, will try to make a case before God. And yet back here in verse 11, Kohala says, there are many words which increase futility. Yeah, but, but I did this. Yes, you did. And you did this. Oh. But I did this. Yeah, you're right, you did. But you did this. Ooh. And it becomes a futile argument. You cannot argue your case before God. Look over at Isaiah chapter 45, a couple of books over. God makes His his position and His case absolutely clear. Isaiah 45, verse 8. Isaiah 45, 8. He says, Drip down, O heavens, from above. Let the clouds pour down righteousness. Let the earth open up and salvation bear fruit and righteousness spring up with it. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to the one who quarrels with his maker. An earthenware vessel among the vessels of the earth. Will the clay say to the potter, what are you doing? Or the thing you are making say, he has no hands. I'll tell you something, my friends. Far too many Christians talk to God this way. They think it's cool. They think in their relationship with Him that they're so close to Him that they can question Him in such a way. I just I don't see it. I don't think that's how we're supposed to relate to the Lord. Relate to God. What are you doing, Lord? How come? How could you do this to me? God says, "What right do you have to quarrel with the one who made you?" Verse 10, woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, to what are you giving birth? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and His Maker, ask me about the things to come concerning my sons, and you shall commit to me the work of my hands. It is I who made the earth and created man upon it. I stretched out the heavens with my hands. I ordained all their host. God did all this. So who can argue with God? No one. You can't argue him. You can't do it. Any dispute a man has with God will be a futile conversation. Verse 12, For who knows what is good for a man during his lifetime, during the few years of his futile life? He will spend them like a shadow. For who can tell a man what will be after him under the sun? And the answer again is no one under the sun. There are no answers down under the sun. You have to have a different perspective. You've got to see from above. Now, in verse 7, the preacher turns proverbial. In fact, he's going to give us ten proverbs. Or so, ten verses worth of proverbs, making up a series here. And it's another hint that Kohalath is probably Solomon, because of the way these proverbs are spoken, the way they come off. But the connecting word in all these ten verses is tov in the Hebrew which means good. I told you the story about me running into that Jewish man first time I was in Jerusalem. Very, very Jewish rabbi, short, kind of bent over, holding several books in an elevator. And, and I said, good morning, you know. And he said, Bokertov. I was like, oh, that's cool. You know, he just said, good morning. Actually, morning better. Have a better morning. Bokertov. The word tov, meaning better and Kohalath uses it here throughout to say, this is better than this. That is better than that. Tov is the key word. So verse 1, he says, a good name is better than a good ointment. 
And the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. Ouch. (laughs) You know, if you read verse 1 too quickly, you'll miss the fact that you've just been sucker punched. (laughs) Because the first half of the verse is, is nice to hear. Yeah, yeah, a good name. A good name is better than a good one. He's talking about reputation. And then all of a sudden, bam, the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. Whoa. We went from light to rather deep all in a second here. Why would he put these two back to back? Listen, they're connected. They're connected. A good name is better than a good ointment. Now again, that speaks of reputation. Back in Proverbs 22, verse 1, a good name is to be more desired than great wealth. So a good reputation is valuable. It's a valuable thing. Better than than good ointment or or anointing oil or or sweet oil, he says. But the second proverb, immediately on its heels, the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth, speaks of realization. Realization. You know, funerals and mortuaries are like big alarm clocks to a sleepy existence. I was, uh, back our sophomore year of college, Cheryl and I went out to with some friends to a deer lease in eastern Texas to spend Thanksgiving. And we were in this freezing cold cabin there. Uh, several rooms and, and our friends were all there and it was just no insulation. And so I just froze all night long. And Saturday morning, we were getting up at the crack of dawn. The alarm was set for 4.30 in the morning to get up and go sit in a deer hut and watch for deer. You know, it was miserable. I don't know, you guys who do that, bless you. But I'm in bed there. I'm in bed there. And the alarm clock was one of these old, old clocks. I mean, so old, there were church bells on top of it, I kid you not. And the thing was huge, and it had one of those hammers. And we figured, well, we'll set the thing, and we put it by the bed, and it was right by me. I must have gone 20 feet right through the ceiling when that went off in the morning. I mean, just click, 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 It was like, and that in the cold, and I was wide awake for about seven weeks following that experience. Unbelievable. But you know what? An alarm clock. An alarm clock with chapel bells. That's what a funeral home is. That's what a funeral is itself. In fact, he goes on in verse 2 and he says, it's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. Down in verse 3, sorrow is better than laughter, for when a face is sad, a heart may be happy. Verse 4, the mind of the wise is in the house of the mourning, while the mind of the fools is in the house of pleasure. Why? Second half of verse 2. Because that is the end of every man. And the living takes it to heart. He's absolutely right. Even under the sun, Koheleth makes it very clear. The day of death, the house of mourning, the sorrow of the funeral, and the place of the mortuary are better because they wake us up to the reality of our mortality. Suddenly we are reminded of it. Part of the reason people get so weird at funerals is because they are scared to death. Because they see. And and, and it's it's inescapable. I've seen people come to faith in Jesus at funerals or immediately following funerals. Right, Spence? Because you cannot escape that reality. It is like a massive old alarm clock going off in our face saying this is a better place to be even if only for a moment because it allows the sense of eternity. Remember this in our hearts? Ecclesiastes 3.11 He said eternity in my heart. It allows that sense to start ringing and wake me up to the reality of my mortality. But how does that relate to a good name? The first one, a good name is better than a good ointment, and the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. How are these two connected? Jesus sent out 70 disciples. And as He sent them out, they they went out on a gospel campaign to preach the kingdom. Sent them out two by two to every town that He was going to go to, and then He was going to follow them and come into each town and continue to teach the kingdom. And He gave them power to heal. Power to cast out demons. And it's remarkable because the 70, we're told in Luke 10.17, returned with joy. They were saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in Your name. Now, i got to tell you, that would be cool. 
I'd like to be able to heal someone, you know, lay hands on someone and heal them, but to cast out a demon, you know, that's powerful stuff. In Jesus' name, come out! And they're cool, and the demon's going, Give me a pig, man! Okay, go! And just, wow! Wow! And Jesus said to them, listen to what He said, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. Woohoo! Yeah, go Jesus! We're powerful people now! Nevertheless, nevertheless, Jesus says... Do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. A good name is better than a good anointing. A good name is better than all the spiritual power you may be able to to wield in this world. Man, better to have a good name recorded by Jesus in the Lamb's book of life. That's the name I want. And that's where I want my name to be. Because when facing the reality of our mortality and that ugly, loud, horrible alarm going off in our faces, Jesus wants you to have, number two, the certainty of eternity. The certainty of eternity. Funeral homes do not bother me. Not in the least. Doing funerals. Especially funerals for believers. Love doing those. Because I, I can do them with such confidence. I, I don't like doing funerals for people who are not believers or people that you're not sure about. Because those are just, wow, all I can do is talk about life under the sun. But to be at a funeral for a believer, what a precious thing. The certainty of our eternity. Jesus says in Revelation 3.5, He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments. And I will not erase his name from the book of life. I will confess His name before my Father and before His angels. And again, that's a good name. Better than any anointing you might have otherwise. Verse 5, more Proverbs. He says it's better to listen to the rebuke of a wise man than for one to listen to the song of fools. What's your favorite pop song out there? If you listen to the radio much. There's a lot of really dumb songs out there. Cheryl will tell you one of my favorite bands from the 80s was Toto. Loved Toto. And these guys, Steve Luther, you know, David Page, the Procaro brothers, they were phenomenal musicians. All studio cats who came together to make this band Toto, and the music they came up with was just amazing. And the lyrics were just stupid. <laughs> if you listen to their songs, it's all the same thing. Rosanna, Leah, uh, Holiana. Pamela, they're all girls' names. And they're just all girls' songs. And they're just really lame. And he says it's better to listen to the rebuke of a wise man than to listen to the song of fools. Well, that's my best example. Verse 6. As the crackling of thorn bushes under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. And this, is, this uh, too is, is futility. <laughs> I've heard that person laughing in restaurants before. You know the one where you're sitting there, you're having dinner? And they're over there just cackling. You're like, don't you know you're in public? (laughs) You're like a crackling pot of... Anyway, verse 7. For oppression makes a wise man mad. Now, isn't that the case? If you know what's going on and you see oppression happening, doesn't it just drive you nuts? Those of you who are watching our country, isn't it just driving you nuts? Oppression makes a wise man mad. And a bribe corrupts the heart. Verse 8, the end of a matter is better than its beginning. I agree with that. I don't care how good the beginning of a novel is, I want the end. (laughs) Patience of spirit is better than haughtiness of spirit. Absolutely. Do not be eager in your heart to be angry. For anger resides in the bosom of fools. Verse 10, do not say, Why is it that the former days were better than these? (laughs) What a verse for my birthday right there. (laughs) For it is not from wisdom that you ask about this. Oh, I missed the glory days. I was taking a nap yesterday. It's like four in the afternoon. I had this horrible sinus headache. It was just rocking me all day long. So finally I said, Cheryl, I'm going to go close my eyes. And Cheryl and I, what we do is the occasional power nap. Because anything over 15 minutes and I just get up groggy. So 15 minutes. I'm just going to close my eyes. So I lay down 15 minutes. I opened my eyes and I kind of looked over and Cheryl's got this vanity over by the side of the bed and, and there's a mirror there and I, I saw my face and I just went, you're 47. Dude, 
like, whatever happened to the young man, the scrapping lad, you know? Do not say, why is it better that the former days were better than these days? So I, I get this verse. You know all these Proverbs? They're Proverbs, they're wisdom for dealing with life under the sun. But man, even better, don't look down, look up. In these Proverbs, Kohalath offers a different perspective than the one that's usually taken under the sun. And so even your average person can take these Proverbs, apply them to life, and life is a little better for the sake of them. Why? Because they're wisdom from above the sun. Not the typical wisdom we get below the sun. Now, personally, I think in verse 11, Kohalath is going to return to the certainty of eternity. This is one of those things, and you might want to just check this out. Check me out on this. I'm pretty sure of my understanding here, but I didn't see this in any commentaries. No one else supports this notion, so it could just be me going off the deep end. How's that for a setup? Verse 11. Wisdom, along with an inheritance, is good, and an advantage to those who see the sun. For wisdom is protection, or literally shade, just as money is shade. But the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the lives of its possessors. I think he's talking about the certainty of eternity here. Why? Because earlier on in the book of Ecclesiastes, Kohala says wisdom's futility. Even wisdom... It's futile because at the end of your life, you're still going to die like the fool. So what good is wisdom? It's futile. And yet here he's saying, wisdom along with an inheritance is good. An inheritance. Now we're talking about something that is lasting. Wisdom with an inheritance. Smart guys, smart guys who get an inheritance under the sun have some protection. Have some shade, if you will. But wisdom from above is an inheritance. Uh, We have an inheritance, right? An inheritance in Jesus that is eternal and unblemished and will not pass away. We have an inheritance. And so you place wisdom alongside the inheritance that comes in Jesus Christ. And wisdom is good to have. Wisdom will serve you well. Because you will have it for eternity. Wisdom from above. It preserves you now. And it preserves you then. It's a shady place now in the difficulties of life. It is a shady place then in eternity later. So set your mind on things above. Verse 13, consider the work of God. For who is able to straighten what He has bent? In the day of prosperity, be happy. But in the day of adversity, consider. God made the one as well as the other so that man will not discover anything that will be after him. Man, I'm reading these verses and I'm thinking, all right, now we're getting to it, Kohalath. Now it's time for the altar call, right? I think it's a good time to end the sermon right here. Have you ever had that feeling? You know, I'm up here preaching and you say, now's a good time to end the sermon. You know, land the plane, Rick, land the plane, bring it in. And, and that's kind of how I feel. It's like, all right, he's, he's gearing up. He's talking about the Lord. He's talking about the inheritance. He's saying, here's what it all comes down to. Well, he's just cornering humanistic thought right now. He's just kind of getting it into a corner. He's backing it up until the only possible answer is God. And I love this because he does it throughout the book. He gets you right down to where you're staring face to face and going, okay, God's the only hope, God's the only answer. And then he goes, well, let's talk about something else for a minute. Oh, okay, good. <laughs> I can leave. And, and he starts to corner you again. And over and over in Ecclesiastes, we get cornered by Kohaleth. Verse 15, I have seen everything during my lifetime of futility. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. And there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his wickedness. Do not be excessively righteous. Do not be overly wise. Why should you ruin yourself? Take that verse out of context, and it undermines so much of what the Word teaches us. Don't be excessively righteous. Don't be overly wise. Okay, so be kind of wicked and stupid and you'll be okay. What? What? Verse 17, do not be excessively wicked and do not be a fool. Okay, so don't don't go too far. Why should you die before your time? Verses 16 and 17, that's good humanistic thought. Just be moderate. Don't go extreme. We don't need any of the extreme, you know, the far left liberal thinkers. We don't need the, you know, the extreme right either. And don't you love how Christians have been called the the Christian right? 
the extreme. Hmm? What did he say? At least we're right. At least we're right. Well, I, yeah, we're going to be on either side. In fact, you know what's really funny? Let me just point this out, if I can find it here. <laughs> look, at, look at chapter 10, verse 2. Just to kind of support what we were just saying. A wise man's heart directs him toward the right, but the foolish man's heart directs him toward the left. <laughs> Politics 101. Okay, so back to the verse. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, so don't be excessive, he's saying. Verse 18. (laughs) It is good that you grasp one thing and also not let go of the other. For the one who fears God comes forth forth with both of them. I I had to read that over and over. Really? Is, Is he just talking about moderation here? What's he talking about? Listen, this is a great truth. He's absolutely spot on. Kohalath is saying, you know what? I come before God, both righteous and wicked. I come before God, both wise and foolish. If I'm being honest with myself and others, I'm both. Oh, I I love Jesus and I want to be righteous, but I do some pretty wicked things. And I pour over the Word and I want the wisdom of His Spirit, but I do some pretty dumb things. And so I don't come to God as Mr. Righteous and Mr. Wise. I come as both. Because the Lord knows me. He knows my foolishness. He knows my wickedness. He's aware of of me as I am. And so the authentic person comes before the Lord exactly as Kohalath describes. I come before God. I fear God. And I come forth with both of these. Both of these aspects. And the truth is only the Lord can straighten me out. Only the Lord's going to completely wash away, wipe away the wickedness, and get rid of the foolishness. I come to Him just as I am. This is who I am, Lord. And I'm not here to play games with you because I know you don't play games with me. Why is it so important to recognize this? Because if all we ever do is talk about our saintly status and our royal standing before the Lord, guess what? We run the risk of forgetting all about His grace. On the other hand, if all we do is wallow in our sin nature, our ragamuffin status, we again run the risk of denying His grace. I'm such a sinner. Yeah, you are. I'm such a saint. Yes, you are. And in both cases, you desperately need the grace of God. It's recognizing who we are in Christ. Who we are in Christ and who we would be without Him. Susan Harris, uh, some of you know Susan, several years ago, we were both in in a small group together. And it was at a time where the book by Brendan Manning, The Ragamuffin Gospel, some of you may have heard of that or read it, The Ragamuffin Gospel came out, and and in it, Manning did a really good job of talking about the fact that you know Jesus loves the bedraggled and the broken and the beaten up and the hurting, and it really lays it out there. Yeah, the ragamuffins of this world. The discarded. Jesus loves them. And He does. But we focused on and talked about that so much. You know, it was week in and week out. We're ragamuffins. We're just rag- and, and then finally, finally Susan said one night, she said, aren't we supposed to be a royal priesthood? I mean, can't, can we just talk about that tonight? <laughs> you know, she was tired of being beaten down, I guess. Can't we talk about our royalty? Hey, we need to be aware of both. We need to be fully aware that we are righteous and wicked, that we are wise and we are foolish. A mixed bag of good and bad, at least as long as we live under the sun. Verse 19. Wisdom strengthens a wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Which I think is a ploy or a statement of smaller government. Verse 20. (laughs) Indeed, There is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. So there it is. You could sum up the other verses before it with that. No one does perfect goodness. No one's perfectly righteous. Not under the sun, we're not. So recognize who we are. The real issue, as the preacher points out, is fearing God. Fearing God. We come to God as we are, but we fear Him as He is. Now, 
continuing with more of these conflicting flaws of human nature. And you may recall back when we started into the book of Ecclesiastes, I said sometimes you're going to see conflicting positions here. It's because human nature is conflicting. You know, human nature is, is not clean. It's, it's pretty messy. And so he continues to show these, and he gives some wisdom as to how we can manage this messiness in our world. Verse 21, he says, Also, do not take seriously all words which are spoken, so that you will not hear your servant cursing you. (laughs) For you will also have realized that you likewise have many times cursed others. Man, that that is a good word. What does he mean? Don't be so sensitive when people say negative things about you. Don't, don't you think I know that there are times when people walk out of here and say, boy, he was off today. <laughs> Can't believe he shared that. Well, that was kind of stupid, you know. I know that. I know there are times, there have been many times over the years where I know people have said things about, Pastor Rick, can you believe what he did? Did you hear? If I thought about all the times I've been cursed by people, I would, I would have quit years ago. I'd be like, you know, out in the woods somewhere in a little cabin all by myself with a gun. (laughs) Just waiting. Don't take cursing, don't take negative talk, don't take gossip or slander from other people. Don't take it seriously. Well, but, but, but how dare they say this? Well, yeah, but you've probably said the same about them. Or if not them, you've perhaps said something negative about someone else. Hey, the reality is we have all gossiped. We have all slandered. And the best reason not to slander is because we don't want to be slandered. The best reason to knock off the gossip is because we don't want to be gossiped about either. But Kohala says, don't be so sensitive. Don't be hypersensitive. In fact, look to your own mouth. That's probably the best key. James 3, verse 8, James says, No one can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse men who, by the way, have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. James says, My brethren, things ought not to be this way. A little further down, James says, Who is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds and the gentleness of wisdom. We all have a little bit of work to do in this area. So don't be so sensitive to what people may or may not be saying about you. It's all right. Let them have their opinion. They'll get it out. Verse 23, I tested all this with wisdom, and I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That's wisdom right there. I want to be wise, but I I can't get there. It's beyond me. Verse 24, what has been is remote and exceedingly mysterious. Who can discover it? Wow, this frames our whole study tonight, this verse right here. What has been is remote and exceedingly mysterious. Who can discover it? Exceedingly mysterious. In the Greek, uh, Hebrew, it's the same word spoken twice. What is amok? Amok. You say we've run amok. <laughs> A-M-O-Q if you're writing that word down. Amok, amok. What does it mean? What is deep is deeper still. What is deep is deeper still. Imagine a deep well and you drop a bucket into it because you're dying of thirst. You just want to pull up some cool, refreshing water and the bucket goes down and the rope is spent and it's hanging down there. You can see it. So you get more rope and tie it on the end and you let the bucket go down further and you keep letting it down. But the more you let down the bucket, the deeper the well. You cannot get to the bottom of it. That is what Kohala says is like looking for meaning under the sun. You will never find it. It's too deep. The deeper you go, the deeper you find, you have to go. There are no answers in the depths of the earth. Verse 25. I directed my mind to know and to investigate and to seek. You hear the persistence he has here? I want to know, investigate, seek. He's going after wisdom and an explanation and to know the evil of folly and the foolishness of madness. What's he doing? I want to get to the bottom of things. I am not just letting the bucket down. I'm jumping in the bucket. I am going all the way down. Because I want to get to the bottom of it. And here's what happens along the way. The further you delve into humanity, the deeper it gets. And it's not a good deep. It's not like, oh, he's so deep. 
Whoa, he's so intellectual. She's so intelligent. They're so meaningful. It's a deep, vast void of emptiness. And on the way down, listen to this, it just gets darker. The more you search for meaning, the darker it gets. In fact, it's in this despairing place (laughs) that he runs into a woman that we haven't seen since the book of Proverbs. Verse 26. And I discovered more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets whose hands are chains. Now note that context. I'm on the search for wisdom. I'm heading down looking for meaning and I'm going to go deep if I have to. And the further into humanity he goes, the deeper is the sin. The more he wants to understand mankind and elevate man, he's going down to do it. And in that dark place, she's back. The woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are chains. He says, one who is pleasing to God will escape from her, but the sinner will be captured by her. The lurid adulteress. Strange woman. And Kohala says, an affair with her is more bitter than death. Why? Why is the Bible... Let me just be a little foolish here for a second. Why is the Bible so hard on affairs? You know? I mean, come on. It's a little one-night stand. How big a deal is that? My wife never has to know. I just find a woman somewhere who I'll never see again. We'll do the thing. It's over with. No big deal. Why is the Bible so against physical pleasure of a tryst or an affair? And Koyla says why. Because it's more bitter than death. Because an affair, gentlemen, ladies, an affair distorts every relationship that you will have after it. Or worse, it destroys relationships. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee sexual immorality. Man, turn and run the other way. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but sexual immorality, a man sins against his own body. It's an eternal thing. An internal thing. Thing. It's, a, an, it's like a disease. It doesn't mean that sexually immoral sins are, are worse than other sins. I mean, all sin before God is sin. Yet, in this one case, Paul says every other sin's out here. That sin is right in here. And it should stun us when Paul starts to compare our physical bodies to the temple which houses the Holy Spirit. And we're going to bring that kind of sin into these bodies. No wonder it's more bitter than death. It is a sin that will affect a man internally from here on out. What is the big idea in this section of Scripture? Again, the deeper you go, the darker it gets. It sounds so brave, so marvelous. I am on a search for meaning. What you're going to end up is entrenched in sin. Because searching for meaning in the heart of man is searching into the heart of darkness. And it just is deep and dark down in there. Verse 27, Behold, I have discovered this, says the preacher, adding one thing to another to find an explanation, which I am still seeking, but have not found. Okay, preacher's saying this. I'm still looking. Even at the moment of this sermon, I'm still looking. Can't find it. I have found one man among a thousand, but I have not found a woman among all these. (laughs) Wow. Shall we just move on to the next verse? What's what's he saying here? And you might say, Kohalas has not shown a whole lot of respect for women. You know what? You're not going to get a whole lot of respect for women under the sun. We don't get a lot of respect for our ladies on this earth. It it amazes me. The exploitation of the fairer sex today is as bad as it's ever been. We are so enlightened. And yet, ladies, you know it. All you got to do is turn on the TV for five minutes and the exploitation of ladies, of women, is atrocious. It's sick. No wonder Kohalith says what he says. Now, man's search for meaning in humanity does not elevate women. We're all just going down together. In fact, the next verse he clarifies, Behold, I have found only this, that God made men upright. The word men there is Adam, which is the word that God used for both man and woman in Genesis chapter 2. Okay, 
And they, man and woman, have sought out many devices. The word devices there, it's a great word in the Hebrew. Kishabon. Kishabon. Devices, it means schemes. Plans, inventions. Man has sought out. God made man straight. But we're bending over backwards to invent new ways to sin. To scheme and to devise our own way in this world under the sun. Proverbs 16, verse 9, The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Proverbs 20, verse 5, A plan in the heart of man is deep water. But a man of understanding draws it out. And the preacher is drawing us out. This is what he's doing. He's pulling us out. And the result of his inexhaustible search is the deeper you go, the darker it gets. Wow. We need a better perspective, don't we? We just can't get the right perspective under the sun. It won't happen. You strive all you want. Think about all the things that he's covered thus far. I mean, he's talked about wisdom. He's talked about physical pleasure. He's talked about knowledge and intelligence. He's talked about building things. He's talked about success. He's talked about religion. All these things are under the sun. You've got to get above. You've got to set your mind on things above. So, Koheleth keeps turning the screws. Chapter 8, verse 1. Who is like the wise man? And who knows the interpretation of a matter? A man's wisdom illumines him and causes his stern face to beam. Isn't that true? There's just something attractive about a wise person. Not wise in the ways of the world, but wise having set their minds on things above. There's something that lights up that face. Especially someone who's walking in the wisdom of Jesus. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.16, when a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. It says the Lord is spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are being transformed from the same image into the same image, from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the spirit. And it shows in your face. The right kind of wisdom makes the face to beam. You come out of that sternness. And now you're starting to beam a light with the truth of Jesus. But in verse 2 he says, I say... Keep the command of the king because of the oath before God. Do not be in a hurry to leave him. Do not join an evil matter, for he will do whatever he pleases. Since the word of the king is authoritative, who will say to him, what are you doing? He who keeps a royal command experiences no trouble, for a wise heart knows the proper time and procedure. For there is a proper time and procedure for every delight, though a man's trouble is heavy upon him. If no one knows what will happen, who can tell him when it will happen? No man has authority to restrain the wind with the wind or authority over the day of death, and there is no discharge in the time of war. And evil will not deliver those who practice it. All this I have seen and applied my mind to every deed that has been done under the sun, wherein a man has exercised authority over another man. Note these last three words, to his Hurt. To his hurt. Now these verses here, verse 2 through 9, we're going to come back and deal with on Sunday because there's much to talk about here. And I encourage you to think this through. Read these verses through between now and Sunday and see if you see what, what I'm seeing, which I'm not going to tell you so you're not going to know until Sunday what it is that I'm seeing. But the bottom line here is the preacher is saying you've got to obey the governing authorities. Obey the governing authorities. Obey the king. Man, you made an oath to obey those who are in charge, those who are ruling. Even though in the long run, it's probably going to end up hurting you. Obey them anyway. Okay, Verse 10. So then, I have seen the wicked buried, those who used to go in and out from the holy place, and they are soon forgotten in the city where they did thus. This too is futility. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. Now, this is important to note what he's saying here. In verse 10, he's saying, I have seen someone going in and out of the holy place, so a priest, a religious leader, who did evil, who did wrong, and they died and they're buried, and no one remembers. 
Out of sight, out of mind. No one remembers this horrible, evil thing. Their, their, their tomb is a monument now. Oh, remember the great priest. Don't you remember how evil was? Everybody forgets how bad this wicked hypocrite truly was. But after he's dead and gone, they don't remember. So verse 11 tells us they repeat what was done. History teaches us nothing. Previous sins teach us nothing. We just follow along and do the same thing over and over and over again. No wonder it's futility. And it's what God saw in Noah's day. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Wow. It's futility, he says. Every generation repeats the sins of the previous generation because we have forgotten them. It's as though the sins themselves were dead and buried, and so we just go on bringing them back to life again. Verse 12. He says, Although a sinner does evil a hundred times and may lengthen his life, still I know, the preacher emerges here, still I know that it will be well for those who fear God, who fear Him openly or literally who fear before Him openly. But it will not be well for the evil man, and he will not lengthen his days like a shadow because he does not fear God. It's one of those booster shots of faith we get every now and then from Kohalim. He's getting us into this place where, once again, we're cornered in futility, and then he goes, but fear God. You know, okay, fear the Lord. All right, I'm strong again. And he's saying that fearing God ultimately is always better in the long run. Well, let's finish. Verse 14, there is futility which is done on the earth. Note that. That is, there are righteous men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. On the other hand, there are evil men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. And I say this too is futility. So I commended pleasure. For there is nothing good for a man under the sun, note that, except to eat and to drink and to be merry. And this will stand by him in his toils throughout the days of his life which God has given him uh, under the sun. Verse 16. When I gave my heart to know wisdom and to see the task which has been done on the earth, even though no one should, even though one should never sleep day or night, and I saw the work of God, I concluded that man cannot discover the work which has been done under the sun. Even though man should seek laboriously, he will not discover. And though the wise man should say, I know, he cannot discover. He goes so far as to say here in verse 16 that you should never sleep day or night. What does he mean? If you really want to pursue this, to find meaning in this meaninglessness, man, you don't have any business sleeping. You better spend every second of your life searching. But even after doing that, you still aren't going to find the meaning that you so long for. This is a frustrating finality. But it's a finality, note this, to the natural order. He says several times in these last few verses, he says, on the earth, under the sun, under the sun, on the earth, I saw every work of God under the sun. And all of these things, even trying to understand God from the perspective of humanity, under the sun, is complete futility. The answers will always elude us here. So, so Paul says, Colossians 3.2, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. Verse 3, he says, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, you will also be revealed with Him in glory. Isn't that marvelous? On the one hand, we have Kohalath the preacher, and he's cornering the humanist with the truth that there is no, no sense in searching for meaning. And then we have Paul coming along saying, here's the truth with this. And by the way, this is where Kohalath is taking us. You've got to get above the fray. You've got to look above to find the meaning that you long for. I want to end with this verse. And as a matter of fact, go ahead and close your Bibles for a moment. I'm going to read a verse to you, Isaiah 40, and just have you bow, and, and we'll read through it as a prayer, and I'll, I'll pray after that. But what's remarkable to me about the futility and the meaninglessness under the sun 
and the inability of man to grasp or to find the understanding we so long for, what is futility for the humanist is the greatest comfort for believers that there can ever be. What do you mean? The humanist finds Elohim unknowable and it drives him crazy. You and I, we find God unknowable and we are comforted in that massive greatness, in that inscrutable nature, in a God who is beyond human understanding and as a believer in that same God, I say, hallelujah, praise God. I don't want a God I can understand, do you? No. I I don't want a father that I can figure out because once I figured him out, he ceases to be God. He may be a little bit greater than me, but I got him down. I got him pegged, you know. The truth is, we will never fully comprehend his vast greatness, his glory, his grandeur. But we do get to know him through Jesus. Let's bow our heads. And listen now as Isaiah writes, Do you not know? Have you not heard the everlasting God, El Olam, the Lord, the Creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary. And to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet... Those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Lord, we wait on You. We wait, Father, with an expectancy. We wait actively engaged in the Great Commission. But we wait nonetheless, Father. We wait for the great revelation of Jesus. We wait for the consummation of all things. We wait until we can be fully and completely in your presence. And we wait under the sun, but we praise you that you have given us opportunity to set our minds on things above, to truly aspire to your holiness and to your grandeur and greatness. We thank you for the longing you put in our hearts to reach to where you are and through Jesus Christ to be made pure, and holy that we might step into your presence. Father, where there is meaning and purpose and there is no futility. Lord, fill us with the joy of the meaning that we know in Jesus and send us out under the sun to show others where the truth may be found. Praise you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.